Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a digital interview series with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And our goal on these SALT Talks is the same as our goal at our SALT Conference series, which is to provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts, as well as provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. And we're very excited today to welcome you to the latest episode of our election series uh, that was the brainchild of one of our hosts today, Elliot Burke. Uh, really our goal with this series is to just set the record straight and get the facts out into the sunlight about what happened, not just in the 2020 election, but to teach people about uh, the facts surrounding election operations, election security, and lessons that we learned uh, from this go around that can continue to help us improve the elections process. And we're very excited today that it's a bipartisan conversation as well. So uh, we have the secretaries of state of both Georgia, uh, Secretary Brad Raffensperger, who's a Republican. We have the secretary of state of the state of Michigan, uh, Mrs. Jocelyn Benson. So we're very grateful for both of them for joining us. I'm going to read a little bit more about their bios uh, before I turn it over to Anthony and Elliot for the interview. Uh, but Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger is the CEO and owner of Tendon Systems, in addition to his role uh, there in the state of Georgia. Tendon is a specialty contracting and engineering design firm with nearly 200 employees, and the firm has operated in 35 different states. Uh, Secretary Raffensperger also owns and operates a specialty steel manufacturing plant or multiple plants based in Forsyth County, Georgia. Additionally, he served two terms in the Georgia General Assembly uh, from 2015 to 2019. Secretary Raffensperger earned his bachelor's degree in civil engineering from Western University and was awarded his MBA from Georgia State University there in Atlanta. He's a licensed professional engineer in over 30 states. He and his wife have been married for 42 years and live in Johns Creek. He's a member of the North Point Community Church. Uh, Secretary Jocelyn Benson is the 43rd Secretary of State of Michigan. She is the author of uh, State Secretaries of State, Guardians of the Democratic Process, the first major book on the role of Secretary of State in enforcing election and campaign finance laws. She's also the chair uh, of Georgia, uh, excuse me, of Michigan's task force on women in sports, which was created by Governor Whitmer in 2019 to advance opportunities for women in Michigan and athletes and sports leaders. Uh, she's a graduate of Harvard Law School, like uh, Mr. Anthony Scaramucci, who's also hosting today's talk, an expert on civil rights law, education law, and election law. Uh, Secretary Benson served as Dean of Wayne State University Law School in Detroit. Previously, uh, she was an associate and professor and an associate director of Wayne Law School's Damon J. Keith Center for Civil Rights. Prior to her election to the position of Secretary of State, she served as a CEO of the Ross Initiative, for uh, Sports and Sports for Equality, AKA RISE, which is a national nonprofit organization using the unifying power of sports to improve race relations. Benson is the co-founder and former president of Military Spouses of Michigan, a network dedicated to providing support and services to military spouses and their children. In 2015, she became one of the youngest women in history to be inducted into the Michigan Women's Hall of Fame. Uh, hosting today's talk, as I mentioned before, is Elliot Burke, who's a managing partner and founder of Burke Farah, uh, a law firm uh, based in the Washington, D.C. area, as well as Anthony Scaramucci, who's the founder and managing partner of Skybridge Capital, a global alternative investment firm. Anthony is also the chairman of SALT. And once upon a time, he spent just under two weeks in politics as well. So 
he might have a little Never. bit to say uh, about his experience, but obviously uh, has Never a lot of Madam Secretary, Mr. Secretary, he never lets up on these salt talks. He reminds people every day about my 11-day PhD in Washington chicanery. Okay, so now listen, I have to read this as well. The salt talk election series was created as a record of what actually happened in the 2020 election. It is designed to rise above the noise and hyperbole and focus on the facts and law and educate our views about the election process from a holistic perspective. The SALT Talk, this particular one, is the third in an election series. Uh, the first one was an election security uh, talk with former Department of Homeland Security Secretary Michael Chertoff. The second was an election administration and lessons learned from 2020 with the election assistance commissioners Hovland and Palmer. I'm going to turn it over to my good friend and my longtime lawyer, who knows everything about election law, Elliot Burke. Well, thank you, Anthony. And uh, Madam Secretary, Mr. Secretary, thanks so much for joining us. As Anthony said, this is our third talk in the series. And our first two really focused on the federal perspective. Uh, but it's always important to remind our viewers that our national election system really is a federal, state, and local partnership. Uh, that being said, beyond the constitutional requirements uh, regarding our elections, uh, they're largely run by the states, um, and that's the way our framers designed it. So notwithstanding the litigation that has followed the election, we'll get to that. Um, this election was largely a great success story. Let's back up and go back to, you know, around this time last year, when did you start realizing that this pandemic was gonna have a significant effect on what it is you do? I'll turn it over to uh, Secretary Benson first for comments. Well, thanks, Elliot, and thanks, Anthony. Thank you, everyone at SALT, John, for inviting us today and really taking serious the importance of creating a truthful record of history uh, and exactly how democracy survived really this extraordinary year that we all just went through. So I'm very grateful to you all for, for doing this work. Uh, and I think it'll be an important um, foundation through which people can learn about this cycle in the years to come. Uh, with that, in um, on March 10th in 2020, that was the date of our presidential primary. It was also the date of our first, my first statewide election as Secretary of State. And it was the, the first election in which citizens had a right to vote by mail, as well as a right to vote uh, or a right to vote absentee, a right to register to vote on election day itself and vote. Uh, and those rights were cultivated by citizens themselves who voted them into our state constitution in 2018 and uh, the same year in which I was elected to serve as the state's chief election officer. And at that time, uh, in March on March 10th, we were anticipating high turnout. We were anticipating more citizens choosing to vote absentee than ever before. And we had a very successful election day that we spent a year preparing for that was intended to guide us as we prepared for two other statewide elections following that. One, of course, was in November. At 8 p.m., the polls closed. And we actually celebrated a great success. We saw minimal problems. We saw identifiable ways in which we can improve for the future. Did a press conference at nine talking about the winners and all of that. And then at 10 o'clock, I got a call from the governor letting us know that the first two cases of coronavirus had come to Michigan. At that moment, everything changed. At that moment, we had three elections remaining, a local election in May, an August and a November statewide election. And we immediately began pivoting, adapting and adjusting following the data that we already had about what citizen behaviors were going to be, voting behavior, we already knew more people were gonna vote absentee this year than ever before. We were already preparing an infrastructure for that. 
but we realized the important, uh, and this is probably the most important pivot that we embraced right away, the need to educate every single citizen about how exactly to vote absentee uh, in order to be able to vote from home in uh, regardless of how long the pandemic went on. And then secondly, making sure that citizens not only knew about that right, had faith in it, but that our infrastructure was ready for more people voting absentee than ever before. So our work quickly shifted to that, to planning out that uh, and uh, and really educating citizens about how to vote in this new era. And this is the last thing I'll say, because this was very important. We did not want to and set any, we immediately knew there would be an effort potentially to postpone elections. And we had our next election in May. And so for me, it was very important to demonstrate that we could successfully manage a local election in May, an election in August and ultimately November in a pandemic where delaying or postponing an election was off the table. And instead it was about adapting and adjusting to ensure every citizen knew how to still participate, exercise their vote, even in the midst of a pandemic. Brad, how about you from your perspective? How did you first start preparing for the pandemic and how did you prepare for you know, what turned out to be an unprecedented volume of mail-in ballots. For us, we in Georgia, we have 15 days plus a Saturday of early voting. So we have we had 16 days for the presidential primary. We were in the second week, and that's when we had to postpone the presidential primary because it just had reached the pandemic portion. The General Assembly uh, suspended operations, and daily we were having fewer and fewer poll workers show up just because of the pandemic. So we had to postpone that and immediately then push out the balance of the presidential primary to the June primary, our general primary for all of the other state house and state Senate seats. So we began a very robust program. What does that look like to vote in a pandemic? And number one, we sent out absentee ballot applications to the active voters so that they could uh, decide if they wanted to vote from the convenience of their home. At the same time, we had to find uh, all sorts of you know, PPE so that we make sure that we could vote safely. It was very challenging for the, for the counties, the county election officials. We have 159 county, the second largest number of counties after Texas. So we have a lot of counties, and that's a lot of you know, moving parts. And so many of their employees you know, uh, were not coming into the office. So how do you vote you know, getting ready for the June primary? We had the general primary in June, and in that, the ballot, if you had not voted in the presidential primary, you could vote at that time uh, for the presidential primary. Uh, out of the 159 counties, I would say 154 did a good job. We had five counties that struggled, and one of those was Fulton County. And coming out of that, we got a consent decree with them so we could put a monitor in there to make sure they really worked on improving for the November election. We had the November election, and we had several focus points. And one of those was to make sure that we could shorten the lines. We had very long lines in the June uh, primary when people decided they wanted to come out and vote in person. And so uh, on election day in November, our average wait time was about you know, two minutes or less in the afternoon. We had record turnout, believe it or not, in the June primary. We also had record turnout in the November race. We had record absentee ballot applications and balloting. We had record uh, in-person voting. And then we ended up with nearly 5 million voters vote. That's up from about a million what we had during the 2016 race. So we didn't see the, the, the interest that we had from both sides of the aisle. Obviously for us, that's really, I guess you could say when the excitement started because Georgia has been reliably read for about 20 years on the presidential races. And many of us are really on both sides. I think the Democrats were surprised that uh, they ended up 
uh, vote having more votes for pre, for President uh, Biden than uh, uh, President Trump. And that's when really the big uh, misinformation, disinformation campaign started. But then in Georgia, we have runoffs. And then we had two Senate races and a runoff in January. So we've actually had a lot of you know races uh, over the last uh, you know year, five races all under a pandemic. So it was a very challenging situation. And our counties really did an excellent job faced with all, all the obstacles that they had. Uh, Elliot, if it's okay, I wanna, I wanna jump in and I wanna ask uh, both secretaries the same question if it's okay. And uh, this is, uh, it's almost a metaphysical question in a weird way. So you're coming out of law school, you're coming out of starting your career and you're gonna be the secretary of state of your respective states. What did you think about the continuum of the United States and its democracy when you were a kid? And what are you thinking about it right now in terms of its preservation? Let's start with Madam Secretary. I think that's such an important question because for me, and this is why I got into this work, I realized that it's the people who occupy the positions in a democracy, both as administrators and as elected elected officials and the voters themselves that ultimately will ensure democracy survives. And I was really struck by that because I started my career in Montgomery, Alabama, investigating hate groups and hate crimes all around the country. And being in Montgomery, being so close to Selma, spending a lot of time in Selma, talking with people who'd been actively involved in the creation of the Voting Rights Act and the march that preceded it, really instilled upon me a, a sense that, uh, that democracy is a living, breathing, organic thing that we must, and every generation must, uh, embrace a responsibility to keep alive. And so for me, I became a lawyer because I wanted to do voting rights work. And I wanted to continue the work of those in Selma to protect uh, every, act, every, every person's constitutional right of one person, one vote on election day. It's the one day in which we have a constitutional protection that we're all equal. And, uh, and seeing how far, particularly after the 2000 election, we really had to go to make that a reality. I wanted to make my career one piece of an effort. I just wanted to be another um, foot soldier in the movement to protect everyone's right to vote. And for me, that meant being a lawyer originally. And then after the 2000 election, I began to see that secretaries of state, particularly after 2004 with Ken Blackwell in Ohio, played a pivotal role in it, making decisions every day to ensure that the right to vote really is realized uh, for everyone. And so I, I wanted to occupy this position to be a secretary of state in furtherance of all who've come before us to protect our democracy. And then of course, we certainly saw this cycle, how election administrators at every level and everyone with a place of authority have that really critical responsibility to protect the Republic, to protect our democracy from those who would seek to, um, to damage it. Secretary Ravensburg. I think uh, our form of government is very difficult to protect if it doesn't have the most basic of things and that's integrity. And I think that we always need to be looking at what is the character of the person that I'm supporting. And then we can look at the cause because most sides of the aisle, we, we have our causes, but it's really the person that is you know carrying the banner and really at all elected offices. So it begins at city council and I've been on city council, the state rep, state senator, but we really need to look at basic integrity. And I think we also have to look at basic common decency. One of the advantages I had of serving in the General Assembly, that it was like a big mosh pit. We had Democrats, Republicans, we all sit amongst each other as, as, as instead of being on one side or the other. So we had conversations. And I think we need to have more of those 
conversations about policy that are respectful with each other. It doesn't mean that we change our viewpoints, but maybe we, we take a little bit of what someone says and we can have conversations to move things forward. At the end of the day, people want government to work for them. I think it has to start with personal integrity. And that's one thing I did say to everyone that had concerns about the election. We have 159 counties that run the election. Now, if you look at your county election directors, what guides them is their personal integrity. As long as we, they walk that line of personal integrity, then you don't have much to worry about. The political parties need to turn out their people. But when you have personal integrity of the people running elections, it's all going to work out at the end of the day. I think that's exactly right. And as somebody that's practiced in this area for 25 years, um, the challenges to the integrity of our system is something that, you know, I really spent uh, a tremendous amount of focus on. And this conversation that we have about vote fraud and how widespread is it, does it exist, and voter suppression, it really, you know, it's a conversation that doesn't focus on the realities of our system. And what I always say is that vote fraud occurs just as vote Depression occurs and no amount of it should be tolerated because any challenge to it is going to affect the public's confidence in our system. And the last time we were really here as a nation having this conversation was 20 years ago. And that led to the passage of the Help America Vote Act and the creation of the Election Systems Commission. Uh, curious as to your thoughts on how effective the EAC has been. I'm on the board of advisors of it, you know, so full disclosure there. Um, but it wasn't an attempt to federalize election. It was really designed to come up with best practices and assist the states. And so that conversation obviously is going on right now within the EAC, but I'd be curious as to how effective you think it's been. And I know one of the main areas they're going to look at moving forward is the, um, the, the timeliness of our voter rolls and how to keep them up to date. Um, so moving forward, I'd love to hear your thoughts on those two questions. Brad, you I'll, I'll take that one. I, I am grateful that the EAC is a commission of two Republicans and two Democrats, because I certainly wouldn't want it to be, you know, three, two. And I know that the Democrats wouldn't want it to be the other way. But what that really means is then you have to come together and really hammer out good policy that both sides can support, because we have very close elections at the end of the day. So you really have to get buy in. When you do that, I think it helps make our society more stable. From the standpoint of being able to update, update the voter rolls, that's a conversation that is well past time to have. In Georgia, we have about 8 million registered voters. Studies show that on average, the average American, 11% of voters move every year. And you just run the numbers, that means we have 800,000 people in Georgia moving every year. And if we can't update the voter rolls 90 days outside the election, that's 200,000 voters that have moved someplace. Have they moved out of state? Have they moved within the state? Are they out of precincts, different county, things like that. And so we need to have something that is very objective-based, not subjective. I'm an engineer, and when you deal with objective, objectivity, you can't argue with the facts. When you get into subjectivity, that's why you need lawyers. And so <laughs> uh, I really like objective measures. And that's why we also joined uh, ERIC, the Electronic Registration Information Center, which I know Michigan did as well. It's an objective measure of keeping up accurate voter rolls. It's very important. I couldn't agree more. And I think it all gets back to the basic foundation of facts and truth and data that has to guide election policy, that has to guide election administration. And when it does, 
voters win. Uh, and so the EAC has a great role to play. And, you know, as someone who one of the first things I did after the 2000 election was work on the Help America Vote Act and do research to actually collect the data from the 2000 election. Where did spoiled ballots occur? What could have gone better to inform what ultimately became the creation of the EAC, which was really designed in part as a repository of those facts and that data to help us as we're making quick decisions in the election administration to make them from a place of best practices and truth and data. And we saw this year, and as Brad, just, or Secretary Raffensperger just pointed out, how critical it is that whether it's making sure we have accurate roles or making sure we're delivering an election system that voters, that will ensure voters' voices are heard, you have to and, and, and you should follow what the data tells you. And if you do that and you make policy not out of partisan agendas, but out of just simply following the data-driven solution and best practices, you actually can have a successful uh, election. And, and that's really what informed our success in Michigan and I know in other states this year. I guess uh, these are sort of short answer questions, but I'm curious to your reaction to, to these. The first one is uh, in light of what happened in 2020, are we moving towards a safer, freer, and fairer electoral process? Or are the two of you worried that we could be making a turn towards a destruction of our democracy? I think that question is gonna be answered by the people of our country and our leaders moving forward. Every decision that will be made, the, way, the, vote, the people voters choose to serve as secretaries of state, there's elections coming up in 22, on both sides of the aisle. It doesn't matter as Brad and I have shown whether you're a Democrat or Republican, if you're just committed to integrity and administering elections. But really it's in the hands of all of us. We've seen how close we can come and I, I'm sure those challenges will continue. I'm confident that they will. Uh, those challenges to the sanctity of our de democracy, uh, those challenges to people's votes, they will continue. The question is what will the majority of America do in response? Will we dig down and protect our democracy as we did successfully in 2020. Uh, and I think what, what I know right now is if we don't, uh, then indeed we could move uh, away from the Republic that I know we all cherish. Our General Assembly is meeting right now and there are several bills under consideration. I think at the end of the day, you see bills that really have the appropriate level of accessibility balance with security. And when you do that, that is really the balancing point. We need to have accessibility, we need to have security. I think that's when you have those honest conversations. I'm also very grateful that many states like ours, we've moved to a verifiable paper ballot. And so therefore, if you need to have a recount, we actually have something that we can recount. When we had electronic voting, you just would press the button and get the same answer. But when we had the verifiable paper ballot, we verified the initial count, and then we could actually count that twice, which we did in Georgia. So we had three counts on that, and each one of them verified the results. And it's tough to argue with a piece of paper when it has a name on it. Yeah, well, you know, my friend Chris Krebs says that you, it's very hard to hack paper. I don't know if you've heard him say that uh, on more than one occasion. So uh, so the I guess what I'm asking is about awareness, the fact that more people are aware, at least I'm hopeful, that that will lead to even further integrity. I wanna to switch to another quick question. Uh, Jill Lepore, who wrote a book called These Truths, is a former alumnus of Tufts University and a great historian. She more or less says in the book that voter suppression is as old as any American tradition. And she more or less says that voter suppression is like apple pie in America, meaning it's happened forever. 
uh, and she has a lot of facts to support that. Uh, I guess I'm going to start with you, Madam Secretary. Do you think we're getting better at not having voter suppression? Do you think we're getting more open or do you think we're heading towards even more voter suppression in the future? Well, I think when you're dealing with a democracy that ultimately is about the distribution of power in our country at the state and federal level, you're always going to have um, efforts by bad actors to use the political system, further partisan agendas in a way that enables them to have power. And manipulating that sometimes comes through the act of making it more difficult for certain communities to vote, particularly historically disenfranchised communities. And indeed, the whole history of our democracy has been a story of that. And it would be naive of us to think that, that, that the efforts that led to uh, the disenfranchisement of historically underrepresented communities in particular and, and, and voter suppression over time, uh, there's no evidence to suggest that that has gone away or that anything has diminished. Perhaps the ways in which that evolves uh, and way the, the way in which suppression manifests itself in our democracy has evolved. Um, but uh, every generation, is, as Congressman Lewis says, has the responsibility anew to fight those efforts, knowing that they are almost endemic to the political system that we are in. And only when good people on both sides of the aisle demand to ensure every voice is counted, every voice is heard and every vote is counted, that we can truly uh, ensure we overcome that endemic effort to suppress people's voices. But make no mistake, it's always been a part of our system and, and it would be naive of us, I think, to um, to, to think it's gone away. And, and, and again, that's why voters need to choose elected officials and election administrators who are going to stand with them and making sure their votes are counted and voices are heard regardless of who wins, who loses and any political affiliation. How, how, do, we, how do we stop it, Secretary Raffsenberger? How do we make it more available to people? the right to vote. When I was running for office for Secretary of State, at some point it, it hit me that this is the birthplace of Martin Luther King Jr. And this is a tremendous responsibility really based on the history that we have had in Georgia. And therefore uh, we have done everything. I know that when Stacey Abrams lost, uh, she talked about voter suppression, but if you really look at the facts, I know it made great narrative for the chief said, but if you looked at our facts, we have 16 days of early voting. We have record res registrations. We have record turnout. We also have opt out when you will be registered to vote when you get your driver's licenses. It's real ID compliance. So we have security with accessibility. And I really believe that Georgia's made tremendous strides. In fact, we made such great strides. That's why today we have, that's why today we have you know, businesses flocking to Georgia. That's why I have 6 million people that live in the metropolitan area. That's why Georgia's expanded. And some of the other, you know, state, Southern states never got that message. And so we've already really led and have come together as an organization. And I feel that uh, we've done a great job in Georgia. And I believe that our General Assembly will continue to lead. You know, basically uh, we have a motto in Georgia. It's our official motto. It's wisdom, moderation, and justice. And those are three great, you know, chords of a strand and I, can we continue to build on that? Georgia will continue to move forward. Secretary Benson, uh, another major issue that came up this election was, was ballot harvesting um, and other chain of custody issues. Moving forward, what do you see in terms of steps that can be taken to bolster integrity of the process by you know, taking out this sort of the, uh, that process uh, and eliminating ballot harvesting? I think it's a couple of things. One, I mean, in Michigan and many other states, we don't have that 
ballot harvesting, it's not permitted. You actually have a clear chain of custody under our law for what uh, ballots uh, can be voted and then delivered and counted. And it's all validated by the voter's signature. No voter can get a ballot, uh, it's mailed to them or given to them without signing an application that that signature must then uh, match the signature file. And then that only gets them a ballot. The ballot actually isn't counted unless the voter actually signs the outside of the envelope and then returns it on time. And then that signature is then matched. So there are several protocols in place that many states have developed like that to ensure that you have uh, provisions in place that protect the integrity of the process without making it uh, more difficult for someone to cast their vote. And I think that's the heart of, uh, to get back to the previous question as well, is how do we basically protect the integrity of the process while also ensuring that every voter's voice is heard and it comes down to, and this is what the EAC and data can, can really inform, how you ensure you're making data-driven decisions that ensure that you meet voters where they are, give them options to cast their ballot, and then make sure every option, whether it's a paper ballot in person, whether it's voting through the mail uh, with the signature protocols in place, is uh, covered with various integrity mechanisms to protect the integrity of the vote. And actually, the thing I found this year, both with ballot harvesting and just all the other things, is that it's a two, two sides of the same coin. Number one, we build the infrastructure that's secure, that's accessible, that's fair, and that can stand up to immense scrutiny, as we did, as, as Brad did in Georgia, but then the other side of it is that you have to educate people about how to use that system, how to uh, play by the rules and ensure their votes are counted, how to be accessible, but also, again, educate them on the role they must play. And then in doing so, you can also empower voters to push back against misinformation uh, that isn't based on data, but is furthering a partisan agenda, but is instead lies uh, fed to voters about um, uh, you know, false on the election integrity. And then through doing, through educating voters about the truth, they can be empowered to recognize a lie before it hits the airways when they get it and, and, and resist it. And, and we saw a lot of that happen in Michigan, a lot of that work in Michigan. So it's multifaceted, but it's it, voters have, and voter education is a key component. Secretary Raffensperger. One of the first bills that uh, I worked on when I got in the Secretary of State's office was House Bill 316. And what that did was outlaw ballot harvesting. So we understood that and we've been working on that. But it's interesting because of the disinformation campaign that we've just been under, um, we have many voters that are writing to us, you know, pass a law to outlaw ballot harvesting because it had been told them it was going on in Georgia. It's been outlawed and we do investigate it. And when it comes before the state election board, we will prosecute. Yeah, I think that's also something we've learned in this process too, is that uh, the disinformation campaign uh, so vast that, you know, even amongst lawyers arguing these cases, at least publicly, not so much in court at times, which we saw was, you know, very ambiguous, but they would talk about things that uh, there were concepts, but they not, weren't not, they weren't necessarily occurring in the jurisdiction, or in some cases, the overvoting or undervoting issue, as if it was a smoking gun on something, they just didn't, it was a just a, a demonstrable ignorance of the process. Uh, you know, and I think that's a, a big takeaway is that we just have to do more to continue to educate the public as to how our election system actually operates and what is normal. You know, um, mistakes happen all the time, but they don't necessarily mean that they're systemic. And in some cases, you know, a concept, it's like watching on, you know, CNN or Fox about a high-speed car chase. Um, it doesn't mean it's happening in your neighborhood, you know, just because they show it. So... And moving forward, I think that that's something that we're all going to be responsible for helping out with. 
Yeah, and I hope that can be an outcome of this past year where we've seen exactly what happens when you see a diminishment of civics education and, and, and historical education over time. And then you have an electorate or parts of an electorate that can be um, susceptible to lies uh, about the integrity of the process. And it's heartbreaking because you know people are lying to them to further their own political agendas. And as a result, you have citizens who have every right to believe that the, the, the process is secure and that their votes were counted, even if they're unhappy with the outcome. Uh, they, there's every reason to believe that all the data shows they should, yet they'll believe lies that are furthering a political agenda. And, uh, and we need to better equip our citizens and empower our citizens to, uh, to push back and recognize lies when they're, when they're told to them so that we can protect them and the furtherance of our democracy. So let's, let's dispel some of those lies, which is the I, reason why we're calling it uh, election integrity and, and, and truth series. Uh, walk us through the chain of custody for mail-in votes in your respective states. Why don't, why don't we start with you, Secretary Rabsenberger? During the pandemic, we stood up an online portal for people that wanted to request uh, an absentee ballot. It, first of all, it uh, took the human element out of it because the counties were short-staffed, but they would put in their driver's license number and then their birth date, day, month, and year. So that way we could make sure it truly was the person uh, it, uh, wanting that ballot, requesting that ballot. So for the first time we in effect had photo, photo ID because it connected to department driver services. Once that was done, uh, then it was processed and then an absentee ballot was sent out to the voter. When it showed up at, on your doorstep, then you'd open it up, make all your selections, close it up and sign the envelope. Uh, then when it came in, uh, the signatures were matched. We actually did a signature uh, match audit study for Cobb County since we had uh, actual a complaint at that county. And we found out of 15,000 uh, sample size, we had two uh, ballots that did not match up. And it was actually the spouses that voted for their husbands. The husbands knew that they were voting for them. But uh, the point is, is that signature match did go, uh, was being used. But then... Uh, so we have chain of custody throughout the entire process through there. But it's the one area because uh, it's not under the control of an election official with all eyes on it, that does raise the greatest am amount of concern of voters. And we understand that. And that's why we wanna make sure that there is a strong chain of custody and strong voter identification so that you know that is truly the voter that requested the ballot. Yeah, and here in Michigan, it's very similar. And again, these are best practices that states that are in place in states all across the country where you have uh, in Michigan, two signature checks, as I mentioned earlier, one on the application when a ballot is requested. And then when the ballot is returned, the voter signature is again verified. And we actually implemented also in Michigan standards uh, for signature evaluation, working with clerks, and we're gonna continue to make improvements where we can in, in, in ensuring our 1600 clerks have all the tools and resources they need to, to uh, have that, that double signature check process continue to be one that is, um, uh, that is following the best practices and matching signatures and ensuring the verification of the voter's identity. Uh, and then after that, uh, we also have a requirement that ballots be received uh, by election day, either, either in the clerk's office or at a local drop box. And we put in more than a thousand drop boxes all across the state of Michigan to ensure citizens could meet that requirement. Uh, and then after that, the clerk, uh, after the clerk verifies the signature uh, and re records the receipt of the ballot, uh, they also then bring it to the counting board. And there's a bipartisan 
a counting board that actually counts the ballots with uh, plenty of, of observers as well. We had hundreds of people all across the state, uh, including in Detroit and Southeast Michigan, observing the actual tabulation of the ballots once brought to the counting board. So there, it's a multi-factored, uh, multi-step process with security checks at every step of the way to ensure that only valid ballots are being counted. And it's one that we're really proud of. And I think in Georgia as well, you saw uh, the, that the actual process worked very well this year. And as, I was so grateful that you all started by mentioning the success of this year's elections, because that's really the true story here. It was an extraordinary successful election. Uh, and it was so successful that it was able to stand up to a historic effort to undermine that truth among our citizens. And uh, and so, you know, moving forward, we have more, much more to learn than anything else from this election cycle, uh, including how to ensure the integrity and security of the process and its great scrutiny. But, but I want you to state that uh, definitively, Madam Secretary, because people get all of this disinformation from your observation at your state and, and, and overall, the election was, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but tell us what the election was in terms of its freedom and fairness. I think this was the most successful election Michigan has had in recent history. We had more people vote than ever before. We had secured elements of the process from top to bottom and uh, in the midst of a, an extraordinary amount of scrutiny, which had there been any uh, any you know, significant uh, wrongdoing or problems, it certainly would have been found and revealed. And instead we were able to meet every element of misinformation, every rumor with the truth and the facts and the data and, uh, and the hard work that our election administrators put into ensuring the election worked and was extraordinarily successful. And that to me is ultimately the story of the 2020 election. No, look, it's an amazing story. You're, you're, you're a great Patriot. Secretary Raffensperger, who won the 2020 presidential election in the state of Georgia? President Biden did by about 12,000 votes. And uh, it's, Elliot, you see any issue with that, Elliot? Or I, I don't. I mean, I actually, obviously, um, you know, I follow these things closely. Um, I'm very familiar with that's um, office. Uh, I've represented them before the Congress uh, with respect to allegations made uh, on the last election. And so, you know, we know what to look for and I know who to speak with, including, you know, members of the Election Assistance Commission. There was no daylight between anybody in this space that actually works on this stuff in terms of what happened. Um, you know, one of the things that uh, was interesting to me was you know, look, I've, I've, I've run war rooms at the national and state level. And when you run war rooms, you typically, what you start to see is things happening. So you say, in this county, this is going on. In this county, this is going on. That doesn't mean that there's an attempt to steal the election. It means that something's going on. A lot of times you work with your election day officials and you fix it. And I didn't, I just didn't, we didn't hear that much going on with respect to at least the in terms of concerns they were raising election day, everything sort of came out of, um, you know, post-election. Um, and a lot of what we heard, you know, a lot of it was allegations. Some was made in court, some was made outside the courtroom, were things that could have been addressed. Um, it would have been more appropriate if they had been addressed election day. And they probably could have, you know, there, there could have been confidence on their side that, um, that they were they were being handled in a way that made made them feel comfortable, but then it sort of took its own direction, became something else. Um, and one of the things I think also is a big story of this election that we haven't touched on, but.
but it was something that Mike Chertoff brought up. Um, he, when we did our talk uh, earlier this month, he said he had three main concerns going into the election. One was cyber attacks taking out polling stations. Uh, other two were violent actors attempting to intimidate voters. We talked about that to some extent. And then, of course, questioning the integrity of the election. And that's something we've all talked about <laughs> many times. Uh, and I'm sure we'll uh, get to that in a few moments, too. Um, but with respect to the cyber attacks, um, it is also a great success story. We don't know yet um, about attempts that weren't successful, uh, but we don't. We do know, I think, with a high degree of confidence, and I think this is what Chris was really speaking to. And by the way, when he was speaking in that statement that ultimately got him fired by the president, it was a joint statement by, again, every you know federal, state, and local official that has a stake in this process in terms of. Secretary Benson and Secretary Raffensperger said the confidence that they had in the election outcome. But do you think that it is that um, we have been relatively successful in thwarting cyber attacks by foreign entities uh, where other elements of our critical infrastructure have not? Well, it's interesting. I can't speak to elements of the other infrastructure, but I can say you know, back to what you were saying earlier about how everything went very smoothly. There were a lot of eyes on the process leading into the election. I mean, one of the first meetings I had in February, I was sworn in in January 2019, a month in, I was in D.C. with my colleagues. I know Secretary Raffensperger was there, too, meeting with the federal authorities about how to thwart cyber attacks in our elections. It was something we had identified early on as the probably um, biggest security threat, real security threat to our elections. And so every step of the way, we methodically did everything we were supposed to do, shared information, coordinated with local and federal officials, identified funding needs and filled them when they existed, uh, put in you know, um, great experts at the state level to help with the federal. There was information sharing. Everything you're supposed to do, we did. And I think that's in part why we did see the system uh, prove to be impervious to any potential attempted cyber attack. And again, that's a great success story. And then again, to underscore your point, Elliot, um, you know, election day, we were, we were planning it for years, for two years, for a bunch of all these things, violence at the polling stations, all these things we had plans for. And um, coming out of the voter protection world, that's what you do. You anticipate and you plan for. And, and it was amazing that things went as smoothly as they did. Uh, and, uh, and then it wasn't for us until about 4.30, on Wednesday, 24 hours or so after the polls closed, when word started to trickle out that Biden, I think CNN shortly then, shortly around that time called the Biden, Michigan for Biden, that um, the fire hit our state and the attacks began. Uh, the perception, the misinformation, all of that really escalated at that point, which was really telling. Uh, it gave me a lot of pride because we did it. We did, we successfully managed an election. Now we just had to fight the misinformation and the, the narrative battle. But we actually did the work well. And again, that was because we had been working on it for, you know, as long as possible since I took office. Well, we are concerned uh, to uh, Secretary Benson's point. Whenever we meet with the National Association of Secretary of State, I would think that uh, we talked about cybersecurity probably 30 to 40 percent of the time. So we understand it was on all of our radar. And so uh, we had some uh, potential threats, uh, but nothing ever penetrated, you know, our wall of defenses. But doesn't mean we, we can ever let up. And that's the thing is coming into the next cycle in 2022, we have to remain vigilant. It's There's hackers out there. There's actors from all over the world it, and also national actors that would love to disrupt elections. We understand how critical it is. 
If you can create distrust in elections and somehow enter the database, something do something on election day, it is highly damaging to our society. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more on that. Um, so getting into the questioning the integrity of the election, um, I'm not, you know, our time is short and I'm not gonna go through every allegation, every court filing. Uh, I'm sure you don't want to either. Um, but I, I want to, Elliot. Yeah, I, I want to. It's important to me. We'll schedule another time for that. But um, can you talk a little bit just in terms of the underlying litigation strategy? Um, when you get, you know, this was the volume again was nothing that we'd seen before. Um, so how do how do you prepare for that? Uh, Brad, we'll start with you. I guess we had good preparation. Uh, Stacey Abrams led that back in 2018. When I got here in 2019, uh, we, I think, had 11 lawsuits on my first day, and we, we ramped it up to 14. And so we continued to beat those down. And then we had, uh, obviously, the Congress asking questions, too. Uh, so we were ready and prepared. And then the Trump campaign started, you know, making a lot of allegations. Uh, and then we, bit by bit, uh, knocked down every one of them, and none of them prevailed in a court of law. Yeah, I mean, I think in, to Brad's point, it wasn't a legal strategy. It was a PR strategy designed to erode the public's confidence in our democracy. And, and so calling it what it was early on was critical, uh, allowing, you know, cases to be filed at first that, you know, I mean, look, if people have actual evidence of wrongdoing, then let's have that process work out. And then it turned out there was no evidence of wrongdoing. And yet the legal cases continued. And that's when it became even more apparent, I think, to more people that it truly was just a PR strategy. And, and my work, as well as the work of others involved, became twofold. One, telling the truth. Uh, affirming people's faith in the process, allowing the data and the facts to carry the day, and then calling out the the, the bad actors for for what it was, which was a partisan agenda to you know, again erode the public's confidence in the process, and to consistently do that um, was critical. And um, I have great um, gratitude that the judges, uh, the members of our state board of canvassers, the members of our local board, every person in the process who had a critical role to play in upholding the truth. Uh, followed the oath of office that they took and and did just that and uh, and that's you, you know really why we're able to to stop a political agenda a partisan PR campaign designed to under undermine the democracy from ultimately being successful. Uh, Brett, Brett, can you can you walk us through the calls that you had with President Trump and how you and your team prepared for them? Well, the call I had was in uh, the Sunday. Uh, or Saturday before the runoff election, didn't have a lot of time to prepare. So we we just, but we had been well-versed in all of the facts on our side, had a conversation and it really became obvious very uh, early on that it was really, he was repeating all of the misinformation, disinformation that we'd been facing for two months. Uh, very unfortunate, but uh, really Giuliani uh, came down to speak before a state Senate committee meeting and he made all sorts of allegations about what happened at State Farm. And they sliced and diced video. The video is a 24 seven video and they took out portions of it that appeared to show that there was ballot stuffing. Unfortunately, we were not asked to come to that committee hearing. We were not allowed to put Rudy Giuliani under cross and really slice and dice and tell, let's show them what they actually were doing. But we did get a hold of WSB the next day, showed them the whole run of the video and said, this is exactly what happened. And we got brought in other news media sources. And so that was totally debunked. But President Trump 
virtually a, a month and a half later, we're still holding on to that, you know, debunked theory. And so it really is the entire list. He talked about that there was 5,000 or 10,000 dead people that voted. Uh, to this day, we found two, two dead people. They were, obviously, they didn't vote, but someone uh, falsified it. And we're looking for those people. And we'll, we're having an ongoing investigation and we'll prosecute those folks. But those are the types of misrepresentations that were given to him. At the end of the day, uh, I don't know if he believed it or he just wanted to believe it. Uh, and what did come through is that he had large rallies of people. And that can really give a, a candidate a false sense of security when everyone's showing up to hear you. Uh, and a lot of times you had people that came to multiple events and really were traveling you know, around the regions to come to these events because they are entertaining if you like conservative rhetoric. I happen to like conservative rhetoric. And so I can see why people went to those. Uh, they were entertaining. But I think it gave the president uh, a false sense of uh, su support that he had. And he didn't understand that in the metro regions that there was a huge erosion of votes there. And that showed up. And that's why Senator Purdue got about 20,000 more votes than he did in the metro regions. Uh, listen, it were, there had to be tough calls for you, and I we obviously appreciate uh, what you went through. We're we're, we're going to close out in a second, but I think it's important for our listeners and viewers. And for the record, I'd like to start with you, Sec Secretary uh, Benson. What what do you want the American people to know about their electoral process and the guardians of their democracy and uh, where things are going? It's up to them. If we're going to have a healthy democracy, it's up to all of us to protect it. With every election, every day, every every month, that there are forces at play as there have been since the founding of our country that would seek to minimize people's voices and their power in a democracy. And by electing secretaries of state on both sides of the aisle with a commitment to integrity and protecting their voices in their vote, we can ensure that the infrastructure is secure because the work uh, that we've done demonstrates that but that they also have a role, that we all have a role to play in voting and staying engaged and holding accountable those who would seek to lie or manipulate to further their own political agenda and harm our democracy as a result. Uh, and by doing so, by truly all of us being engaged, uh, regardless of how we feel about a particular issue or what our party affiliation is, but committed to democracy, our democracy can flourish and thrive and grow uh, and continue to be that beacon on the hill that, that, that the founding fathers wanted it to be and that we all hope it can be. But it's going to be up to all of us to make sure that it is. What, what did we leave out, Brad? That was very well said, by the way, Secretary Ben. What did we leave out, Secretary Robinsberg? Well, a year ago, I said that 50% of the people would be happy with the results 50% would be had. I understand we live in polarized times. I wanted voters to have 100% confidence in the results. And they can have confidence in the results because 159 of our election directors have personal integrity. This office runs on integrity. We're gonna make sure that we have fair and honest elections in the state of Georgia with the appropriate accessibility and also security of our systems. Well, I gotta tell you as an American, I so respect the two of you. And uh, you know, as a somebody that loves the country, I would always put our democracy and its constitution and the integrity of the election over policy, which the two of you guys have done. So I just, my heart goes out to you with great thanks. Uh, my colleague, Elliot Burke, thank you for helping me get out of Washington uh, unscathed. 
It was a brutal experience for me, and uh, I appreciate you doing that. And let me turn it over to the millennial, who's the only reason why he's on this is because he helps us with our ratings with his shockingly good blonde hair. Did we miss anything, John Darcy? I would just like to point out that technically it was uh, General John Kelly who got you out of Washington, Anthony. Yes, it was. He he did. He pressed the eject button like we were in a James Bond car. OK, but but I landed nicely because of Elliot. OK, let's just I'm setting the record straight on election integrity and my firing. How's that, John? Is there, there, anything, else you, is there anything else you want to bring up? No, I just want to thank, uh, like Anthony said, Secretary Benson, Secretary Raffensperger, also the personal toll that it's taken on you guys. We didn't get to that topic, but you know, you guys, your your lives have changed and you became household names, uh, and maybe in a way that that affected your life in ways you, you never expected before the 2020 election. But you guys have have not uh, shrunk from that challenge and, and you've embraced the fact that you know, you're going to have to be out front uh, you know, fighting the misinformation and everything that comes along with it. So you know, thank you for that on a personal level as well. Uh, and just thank you again so much for joining us here. We hope to do this again in the future. I think, you know, continuing to reinforce uh, the integrity of our elections and the confidence in our elections, it's not going to be solved through one uh, webinar series with SALT or anybody else. It's going to be an ongoing process of maintaining and reinforcing that confidence. So uh, hopefully when we can do live events in the future, uh, as we were talking before we went live, we hope Maybe we can reprise this conversation uh, in the near future in person. So thank you. Thank you. Look forward to it. Thanks, guys. Honored to be a part of the conversation. Thank you again, guys. Really appreciate it. And thank you, everyone, who tuned in to today's SALT Talk, the third and final episode for now of our election series focused on elections operations and elections integrity. Again, our goal with this series is just to expose people to the truth, to put the truth into the sunlight about what happened in the 2020 election so that they can have confidence in the process, as Secretary Benson and Secretary Raffensperger said, in the face of a historic global pandemic and uh, intense pressure coming from the federal government, uh, these states were able to execute what was one of the fairest and freest elections that we have on record. So very grateful for all the work they've done and all the pressure they've withstood uh, that could potentially have led to you know, sort of a, an erosion of our democracy. So thank you to them. And thank you for tuning in and, and learning about the process. That's important as well, that people come into these things with an open mind. Just a reminder, if you missed uh, any part of this talk, any of our other uh, election series talks, one was with former Department of Homeland Security Secretary Michael Chertoff. The other was with two members of the Election Assistance Commission uh, that Elliot Burke was speaking about. That was Don Hovland and... Uh, and excuse me, it was Don Palmer and Benjamin Hovland uh, of the Election Assistance Commission. So if you missed either of those episodes, please go to our YouTube channel. It's Salt Tube. You can watch them there and you can watch all the episodes of Salt Talks that we started doing uh, in May, uh, sort of as the pandemic clearly became a long-term issue that was going to force us to have to postpone or cancel our conferences. So please uh, spread the word about those talks and about these election SALT talks in particular, because we think it's extremely important that people learn uh, the facts of the situation. Please follow us on social media as well. We're most active on Twitter at SALT Conference, where we live tweet these episodes and air a lot of uh, the episodes that that we broadcast live on our Twitter feed. But we're also on LinkedIn, we're on Instagram, and we're on Facebook. Uh, and on behalf of the entire SALT team, that wraps it up for today. Uh, thank you for joining us again. We hope to see you back here again soon on SALT Talks.